0: I have been part of uh, uh, cybersecurity policy since at least 1992, when Microsoft was the hardest edged of all the tech companies we dealt with uh, and had a reputation to match. That view of Microsoft is completely overturned uh, over the last Decade or so. What do you attribute this radical change in public perception and, frankly, I think uh, in actual
1: conduct, too? Well, I think that Microsoft has most definitely changed since the early 1990s. I think in Microsoft's case, we were to a certain degree a graduate of the School of Hard Knocks. Uh, Specifically, the Hard Knocks. Uh, that came from, you know, intense antitrust litigation from the U.S. Department of Justice and and 20 state attorneys general, as well as uh, competition cases literally around the world. But out of that, I think we came away with a broader perspective. I think we developed a more mature outlook. Uh, And I think above all else, we realized that if you Have to choose between hubris and humility. Choose humility.
0: (laughs) Welcome to Episode 289 of the Cyberlaw Podcast, Creeping Up on 300, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government, and the views expressed here are not those of our uh, uh, spouse's Families, pets, firms, clients, or institutions. Uh, uh, today we're going to have, at last, after uh, me hyping it for about three months, uh, an interview with Brad Smith, the president of Microsoft and co-author of the new book, Tools and Weapons: The Promise and Peril of the Digital Age. Uh, and I should say we have uh, uh, one of the stars of the book uh, uh, on our uh, panel today, uh, uh, Nate Jones, uh, co-founder Founder of Culper Partners, formerly with DOJ and the National Security Council, and uh, uh, Microsoft. Nate, uh, Brad Smith talks about you and uh, uh, another uh, uh, professional from Microsoft, uh, Amy, as the namey team. Uh, uh, you had your own shortened um, uh,
2: one-word name. Indeed. It's like Brangelina. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: exactly. Exactly. The,
2: the Brangelina of Microsoft policy matters. I, I uh, tried to talk Brad into taking that out of the book, and he insisted I <laughs>
0: All right. Well, I will ask him about it. Uh, uh, I think uh, in this woke age, we should ask why it wasn't eight as opposed to uh, uh But uh, uh, OK. Uh, David Chris is also on, as you heard. Uh, he's a co-founder of Culper Partners, formerly assistant attorney general in charge of the National Security Division at DOJ. Nick Weaver is here, uh, uh, always uh, in popular demand, uh, uh, senior <laughs> researcher and lecturer in computer science at UC Berkeley. I'm Stuart. Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS and the host of today's program. Uh, Well, the story today, probably the story we ought to begin with because it's something we cover a lot. Uh, is uh, a renewal of uh, several national security uh, surveillance authorities, uh, which was scheduled to come uh, to a crisis point on December 15, was very quietly extended uh, until March 15 uh, by a House amendment to the uh, uh, continuing resolution. Uh, Presumably, uh, the uh, leadership in the House thought it would be better not to have that issue come up in December, although I can't believe it'll be less political in March. Uh, 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 David, uh, uh, any thoughts about why they did this? Well,
3: well, I think they may have their hands full with impeachment right now. Uh, (laughs) And this is a very traditional Move. Um, Many times provisions of FISA and other elements of the USA Patriot Act have come up against uh, the edge of a sunset, and many times Congress has, in a series of short term measures, kicked the can down the road. So this play is right out of the standard playbook to avoid making hard decisions in a timely fashion, and it concerns three elements of FISA the lone wolf provision that lets you go after non-U.S. person individual terrorists, even if they're not related to a group, the roving surveillance uh, authority that lets you follow a terrorist who throws down a burner and moves to another one, and the most controversial, which is the ongoing production of call detail records in the USA Patriot Act that replaced the bulk collection of telephony metadata that previously, uh, that is before Snowden's disclosure, had been in vogue. That CDR program is very complex legally and technically, and it broke badly, and the NSA had to delete all its data uh, and basically shut it down. But uh, government's official position, perhaps without much enthusiasm from the agencies, is that it absolutely must be renewed because you never know when you might need it in the future. We'll uh, put that debate off until, I guess, March, but I wouldn't be surprised if they do another three-month extension at that point and just keep kicking the can for a while.
0: That could easily be. I, I guess I would break down that uh, last category into two. There is the controversial or uh, uh, program of, for call detail records, uh, uh, which, in my view, uh, failed because the um, idiots in Congress. Thought that there was a better solution from the one that uh, NSA was adopting, where they put all the data into one place and could watch it carefully, and instead said, "No, leave it with the companies, and the companies will send it to you." And the companies, not surprisingly, are not sending it in exactly the right format with exactly the right redactions uh, to the point where it can't be uh, used. So this is a a a program that Congress broke, not NSA, and now Congress is saying, "Well, it's broken. You can't reauthorize that." Uh, But Putting that aside, there's also all of the other uses of Section 215 to get records uh, the same way you would get records of uh, in, in a criminal case and uh, without – reauthorization of Section 215 in some form, um, it will be very difficult in a national security case to just demand uh, a production of a whole bunch of records that no one thinks are uh, a serious civil liberties threat um, since we've been doing it in criminal cases for years.
3: Yeah, you're, I agree with you, Stuart, basically on both of those fronts. Uh, the. the- The complexity of the new program definitely contributed to its demise, and I think the problem was on the provider side. And my sense is that the other non-CDR provisions of uh, Section 215 of the Patriot Act that really opened the aperture of the uh, FBI's ability to get tangible things of all kinds, not just a small set of particularized records— I think that's probably not in jeopardy unless Congress screws up the drafting. That is, unless they, fa- uh, right.
0: they only if they fail to renew uh, altogether, uh, right? Yes, Which exactly. would be
3: a very strange outcome, and not one I frankly expect.
0: Uh, so, one other thing that might have ha- played into uh, uh, the House's decision here uh, is that the uh, inspector general's. report, report on uh, how the Justice and the FBI handled the FISA um, uh, application um, uh, relating to Carter Page uh, and perhaps more broadly to the uh, uh, allegations of uh, uh, Russian interference with the campaign that might have involved uh, members of the Trump campaign. Uh, uh, That report is due out on December 9, so very soon and and right before the December 15 deadline. It's starting to leak, David, uh, and uh, these leaks, to my mind, are almost certainly the leaks that you get uh, from all inspector general reports that are high profile because the inspector general has a very praiseworthy process of allowing people who are uh, trashed in his reports to read what is said about them and to offer rebuttals. Uh, It's a good idea, but it means um, that there are a lot of self-interested leaks of the content of the report that come out uh, as these people get a chance to see it and try to put their spin on it.
3: Yeah, that's right. It's funny. Here, for a moment, it looked as if he wasn't going to do that standard practice of uh, letting people review and comment, and then uh, that got cleared up. And so you're right. There's a number of people who've seen it, and so you have some information in the media. It doesn't substitute for actually reading the damn thing when it comes out. And so, of course, caveat emptor until then. But what you're seeing in these media leaks is On the one hand, there appears to be a problem um, in behavior by an FBI lawyer, a fairly young FBI lawyer, who apparently falsified or added to an email that he then pushed up the chain as they were following the so-called Woods procedures to verify the accuracy of everything in the application.
0: The the Woods procedures, just for for those who are listening, the Woods procedure are basically an effort to go through all the footnotes of the affidavits uh, and to say, okay, do we have support for that that we can actually put into a little binder and send on to uh, uh, the, the decision makers? Is that right? Yeah,
3: It's a verification of accuracy process that is named after Michael Woods, a very prominent and talented former FBI lawyer. Uh, now in the private sector, Um, and it came out of a very searing experience uh, pre-911, in which the FBI had made statements in applications that proved to be inaccurate. And The problem that was diagnosed at that time was a lack of coordination between the field agents out doing the actual shoe leather work where the investigations were taking place, and the headquarters agents who were the ones writing affidavits and appearing, if necessary, in the FISA court, and somewhere in that gap. Uh, inaccuracies crept in. So Michael Woods took up the pen and has the high honor of having these accuracy procedures named after him. Um, And I I assume, but I can't be sure that it was in the context of doing a Woods procedures check that some irregularity in this email crept in. Uh, And that's a problem. I mean, people take that, the Bureau takes that quite seriously and, and that, you know, those chips will fall where they may for the individual involved. What the reporting also says though, is that uh, the inspector general is going to debunk uh, a lot of the richer conspiracy theories that uh, President Trump and his closest allies have uh, long been espousing, which is that there was radical political bias and that this thing was wholly unjustified and other things that you've heard from Devin Nunes, for example, uh, some of which have already been pretty effectively debunked just by the release of the applications themselves in part for example the claims about misrepresenting Christopher Steele's possible bias and so forth um, but you have to wait and see for the actual report uh, you know the pre-game speculation is loads of fun but uh, doesn't substitute for the actual report
0: yeah I'm a little I'm a little easier on Nunez uh, uh, I thought what he wrote about the uh, uh, the affidavits uh, and the applications was um, clearly advocacy. It was a a brief, but uh, uh, corrected by the advocacy that we got from uh, uh, Adam Schiff. Uh, um, There was nothing that was false. It was- Uh, Stuart,
3: we're going to have to disagree on that one. All right. Because, I mean, I really think that Nunes actually committed precisely the sin that he falsely accused the FBI of committing. That is, he misled the American people by omitting any reference to this very long full-page footnote about the potential biases of Steele and company uh, when he accused the FBI falsely of having misled the court about it. It was a hell of an omission from Nunes uh, to not reveal that fact.
0: We might also say it was a hell of an omission from the footnote not to say this was paid for by the Clinton campaign uh, uh, and the guy who did it has been leaking to the press uh, and indeed some of the press reports that we're citing later on, Judge, are actually the results of his leak. So they don't really do much to uh, – uh, No,
3: I think we're going to have to
0: disagree on that all right. one too. <laughs>
4: Anyway, didn't they actually say that it was uh, done by presidential candidate B's campaign somewhere in there? They,
3: they they said it was with somebody who had a political bias and an you know an incentive exactly. to go after Trump. That's because they don't mention US persons by name in FISA applications. They don't even mention Trump by name. He's just candidate one and then he's US president number one later. <laughs>
0: I think we should be rethinking that uh, uh, among other things, they don't they don't mention when they when they talk about what's in the uh, newspapers and uh, there's a surprising amount of clippings uh, uh, regurgitated in these uh, applications. Uh, they don't tell you what the source is, and I frankly, I think it would probably make a difference whether it was The Daily Beast or the New York Times. Um, and yet uh, this was, I think Yahoo News uh, um, uh, that they made something of, uh, where they were really re- repeating a leaked uh, version of the Steele dossier, I, I I do think it's it's depriving the court of information. I understand why they might not want to be talking about Americans, but I think that's a little artificial in this context. Uh, but you're right. What what the 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 word on the street is that uh, Horowitz is going to say um, the process of pursuing this FISA application and the investigation was not motivated by bias that he found in the course of his investigation. We'll see what the details are. Uh, This is not completely surprising. Uh, I've always suspected that this was more a matter of failure to consider the possibility that uh, their actions would be interpreted in a political light than that they – uh, were determined to uh, uh, to do something that they knew they shouldn't do. Um, and, and I'll I, say something suspect,
3: sympathetic to yeah. your point of view on this, Stuart, which is number one, um, you know, investigating a presidential campaign is an extremely fraught and horrifying endeavor. And I think, you know, it's got to be done very, very carefully. It's not done every day, thank God. And I wouldn't be surprised if there are some lessons for what yeah. I hope will not be a next time uh, but, you know, which we better prepare for.
0: I think in, inevitably there's going to be a next time. The, the Russians are not going to stop doing this, and the Chinese are going to start, and so are the Iranians and the North Koreans. And, uh, and
4: the president is going to want to order an investigation that helps, him. <laughs> We've seen this already.
3: Yeah, I guess what I hope is that a, a different presidential campaign would behave quite differently than the Trump campaign did in 2016. Uh, regardless of what the foreign governments are trying I would to hope do, so too. but anyway, I think there could be lessons learned. I think there could be room for improvement. Um, it is an odd case to have an, an ODAG official uh, whose wife is involved in in some you know way with all this. So there are things that uh, will come out of this that will hopefully give us some teachings for the future. Yeah, uh, but that's a far cry from you know the sort of slightly crazy conspiracy theories that are dear to the heart of Trump and his
0: supporters. (laughs) Okay, fair enough. Uh, uh, Let's move on. Uh, The Chinese have new rules on vulnerability uh, 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 processes, uh, and basically they say you can't disclose vulnerabilities you find uh, until you've told the government about it, and it's a little unclear... Whether you can do it after you've told the government about it, uh, uh, David, yeah. is that a, a fair summary? <laughs>
3: yes, that's what it appears to be. um, and that will be very awkward for um you know, because uh, what companies that discover these things, you know they want to do is they want to have a a immediate solution, a search for a solution. Uh, and then publicize it widely when they're ready to solve and announce the solution. Um, Governments obviously would like to be given special secret access because they may be able to exploit the weaknesses uh, for signals intelligence or other collection uh, before the world and their adversaries know about it. Um, Not every government can go first. Um, And so, you know, a little bit, this is one of those situations where you could have an arms race uh, that makes a big mess of things, Um, And if this Chinese law is what it appears to be, I think it's going to create a lot of tension and difficulty. You know, here in the United States, we have this vulnerabilities equities disclosure process, uh, which is a little more orderly and balanced. Um, Again, not every government gets to go first on these disclosures. So I predict stormy seas and, and tough sledding ahead.
0: Yeah, I, particularly for uh, cybersecurity researchers in China because yeah. uh, American researchers won't have this problem. Right. They just they're, – they're already out of China uh, as far as I can tell. Right. There was a story in the South China Morning Post suggesting that uh, um, China had a fundamental problem in its AI industry because it was dependent on these – big uh, um, uh, open source projects that Google and Facebook had sponsored with respect to uh, um, uh, the training uh, systems for artificial intelligence, Uh, I'm not completely convinced. Uh, uh, Nick, uh, uh, do you think this is a real problem for China?
4: Yes, but not in the way they're talking about So open source frameworks tend to have a lot of winner take all phenomenon where if one or two become the dominant and this just happened to be the US companies were first and better. And so, yes, China has a competitor that nobody uses. The Chinese just download TensorFlow. Um, This is not a problem for China from a uh, export control viewpoint, though, because these are all just generally available, generally downloadable software frameworks, and no amount of U.S. interdiction could stop them from being exported to China. But there is the aspect of national pride of, oh, my God, we're not using Chinese stuff. And also, there, it's a critical weakness in the Chinese censorship regime, because if you want to be dependent on open source software, you <laughs> yes, have to you allow have to use Git- GitHub.
0: <laughs> this is why they used the Great Firewall to attack GitHub at one point with a DDoS attack on, on GitHub that was designed to um, uh Bring them to heal. They were they were putting the New York Times on GitHub and allowing people to read it in China. Uh, and you're right; uh, the Chinese did not block GitHub because they were afraid to. Uh, well, they actually
4: a... tried blocking GitHub before. Then it lasted four days.
0: Yeah. So I uh, uh, and from a competitiveness point of view, there may be some bragging rights in being able to say, uh, you know, Chinese intercontinental ballistic missiles run on Linux, and that's a Western uh, invention, but it's not really going to do us any good to know that. Right. Okay. Uh, So, Nate, uh, there was a story suggesting that the Iranians are developing a real interest in getting deep into the supply chain of industrial control systems. Uh, they've already demonstrated an enthusiasm for <laughs> breaking industrial control systems. This suggests they want to get upstream and and build the tools in to develop to, – to break them uh, much earlier.
2: Yeah, and this is based on a, a report coming out of Microsoft's Threat Intelligence Center, uh, a first class group of of forensic investigators and analysts that I, I was lucky enough to work with quite a bit when I was at the company and they've reported they've seen a shift in focus the, the Iranians seem to be narrowing their focus on on this set of of uh, or the sector of the economy and Uh, more persistently trying to attack them to penetrate their networks. To me, there are a few interesting things about this story. The first is you are seeing Microsoft open up, I think, quite a bit of late. This group has been out talking a lot about what they've been seeing in the context of China, Iran, North Korea, Russia, and we're learning some interesting things from them having said that you know their their information is based on what microsoft has access to and it's it's a little bit difficult to ascribe motives based solely on that information but you can
0: identify targets right what, exactly. what, what they what they did was they, they said we're looking at what this group is spraying what what particular companies this group is spraying with credential stuffing attacks, uh, and uh, uh, they've gotten much more targeted, uh, and the targets are mostly industrial control
2: systems. Exactly. And they they speculate that they're prepping the battlefield, so to speak, to to engage in physically disruptive attacks on these entities, and that's where I'm talking about. It's, It's a little bit difficult to know what exactly Iran is planning here. And if you're the U.S. government, you want other sources of information that would help you figure that out. And presumably they're looking at those kinds of things. Um, But having said that, it's not surprising that Iran would be looking to do this as their relationship with the U.S. continues to deteriorate as this so-called maximum pressure campaign the U.S. is waging on them. Um, has has more and more of an impact that they would, um, whether it's offensive or defensive purposes, that they would be looking at doing these kinds of things. And one of the interesting things about these types of reports that we see is commentators have a lot of breathlessness about the fact that this is happening. But what governments, in, in my opinion, at least, have not done a good job of doing is explaining whether this actually crosses some kind of line that requires a response. You see um, advanced persistent threats like this penetrating networks of of critical infrastructure entities and other things. And what we don't know uh, or what governments have not yet decided and made clear is whether that penetration alone is something that deserves a response in some way. Typically, it doesn't generate a response um, until they actually... Um, start acting against those those things but it's it's just something to watch i think that uh, governments are going to have to decide whether this kind of activity is something they will they'll accept or whether they want to deter this activity from taking place in the first place
0: it is two or three steps away from actually shutting anything yeah. down uh, on the other hand you know who the hell are they they you know we should we we should make them feel some pain uh, uh, i noticed that um, sure. there there's a lot of internal dissent right now and protests uh, in iran and iran has actually shut down its internet uh, uh I, I i'm kind of hoping that microsoft will do a study of what parts of the infrastructure Iran left up? Because those are the parts that they really value access to the internet for, like probably their uh, APT groups. Uh, uh, and when they finish with their uh, internal dissent, maybe we can shut down those parts of uh, Iran's internet access.
2: And leave the rest of it up, yeah. Exactly. Uh, exactly. <laughs> it's you know it, it's somewhat impressive that they were able to take so much offline in just about 24 hours. Um, but at the same time, it's a, it's a bit of a warning for, for Iran and, and others aligned with them in this space in the sense that information is still getting out. We're seeing videos and we're seeing photos continue to leak out about what's going on in the streets of Iran. And that is just you know proof that shutting down the internet in a place is pretty darn hard. And it's, it's virtually impossible to, to take it completely offline and prevent this stuff from getting out.
0: So we can hope. Um, uh, so, but the Russians are doing their best. They persuaded the uh, the UN General Assembly to uh, vote for uh, talks on the drafting of a convention to prevent uh, crime using uh, 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 internet and communications technology. Uh, um, uh, and it was a you know pretty hefty vote, like eighty eight to fifty eight or something like that. Not the the sort of thing you usually get when all of the third world countries vote together. But still, um, a substantial number of governments, probably not one of them democratically elected, uh, uh, voted in favor of this. Uh, um, It has a kind of anodyne air, uh, which may account for how they got all those organizations to join them. what's What's the worry about this convention?
2: Yeah, I mean, the worry is obviously Russia and and those that sponsored this um, resolution. You know, it's a real murderer's row of, of North Korea and Iran and China um, and, and other likely suspects, Venezuela, that their definition of cybercrime is very different from the way the rest of the world defines it. And that they're ultimately going to push to have this treaty to combat cybercrime. Written in a way that instead of focusing on the things the rest of the world worries about in this space, focus on controlling and limiting access to information, um, in the same way that we're seeing Iran attempt to do in the face of protests right now. And as you said, there were you know it was a pretty hefty vote. There were thirty four abstentions in in the middle. Um, you know, and you presume that at least some of those folks uh, are still have an open mind and are deciding which which path to take. But it seems that the world is largely starting to break down along two lines. One being a group of nations that continue to support a free and open internet. And the second group, um, represented primarily by Russia, um, but backed by a number of others who are willing to and, and have a desire to be able to control information online and control what individuals inside their country have access to and they're doing it under the guise of fighting cybercrime and and you know promoting so-called national sovereignty and and right now they're you know they're having some success they've won two consecutive years they formed a an open-ended working group to look at cyber norms globally last year and and this year, as you said, they they succeeded in passing this re- resolution to dedicate UN resources to developing a treaty on cybercrime that if this vote is any indication, uh, you know, you've got a large block of countries that want to do that, presumably in, in a way that many of the rest of us will not be happy with.
0: So keeping with the Russian theme, uh, Nick, uh, um, Krebs had a long article up that – sort of delved into the reasons why the Russians might have reacted so badly to the proposed extradition of this uh, hacker Burkov from Israel to the point of uh, basically framing some poor the Israeli backpacker for a, a drug charge in the hopes that she could be used as bait for an uh, exchange to get Burkov back to um, Russia. That didn't work. He's now in the U.S. Uh, charged with crimes. Uh, how come the Russians were so hung up on getting him back?
4: So this is Krebs speculating, which means it is, of course, speculative. But at the same time, this is Brian Krebs, where when Brian Krebs doxes bad dudes, the bad dudes get doxxed um and krebs is speculating informed speculation that burkov is one of the key bridges between the cybercrime and intelligence communities that the hypothesis is that a lot of the russian uh Electronic actors are repurposed criminals, and there's a strong, basically, it's the contractor pool for the contractors. Um, and Burkov. Oh, and so
0: all of the contractors are telling the Russian government that it's the end of the world if this guy starts to sing.
4: Right, and that the suggestion is that this guy is one of the prime contractor relationship management points within that uh, blurring between the Russian criminal and the Russian government hacking endeavors. And since Krebs is often right on such things, this will be a case to watch going forward.
0: All right. So, presumably, somebody, uh, Burkhoff's lawyer, is already talking to the U.S. government about what he might uh, get if he cooperates, uh, including a new identity uh, uh, and a job in Silicon Valley. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Okay. Uh, And, you know, I, I. I yield to no one, and certainly not to Ben Wittes of Lawfare, in uh, uh, striving to be a handmaiden to the powerful, uh, uh, as he was once accused of being. uh, But I have to, even I have to get off the uh, the bus with this one. Uh, uh, A drug dealer uh, being investigated by the police; they want to follow him around. They attach a uh, tracker to his car. He takes it. Off his car and puts it in his house, and they say, oh, we've got we've got probable cause to believe he stole uh, property from us, our tracker, and put it in his house." So we want a warrant to search his house. They search the house. Of course, they find drugs. I uh, uh, and uh, uh, they're arguing in I think the Pennsylvania Supreme Court about whether that uh, uh, warrant was based on probable cause of an actual crime. Uh, uh, David, uh, um, is there? Any hope for the cops on this one?
3: It doesn't look very promising. Uh, the Indiana Supreme Court seemed to express a lot of skepticism. And you can understand why. The The Supreme Court of the United States uh, a few years back held in the Jones case that if you physically attach a tracking device to somebody's car, that's a search or seizure. It's a Fourth Amendment event that requires probable cause. Uh, the opinion by Scalia emphasized the physical act of touching the car with the device. Other justices had different theories, but it's pretty settled that if you physically track surveillance by attaching something to a car, that's a fourth amendment event. And we later learned in Carpenter. Well, and it's
0: a fourth amendment event, isn't it? Because it's a trespass, right. which of course means that the person who's trespassed upon has some right to say, I want to end this trespass, right. which is what he did.
3: And, um, and, so then by taking it off, I mean, it is a lovely sort of heads-eye-wind-tails-you-lose kind of a theory, <laughs> and I just think that the the Supreme Court of Indiana's skepticism is likely to find expression, not just in the, I guess, rather painful oral argument that ensued, but also in an opinion. Um, it's it. I mean, there may be a legal theory that, that uh, makes this viable, and that if you trespass on somebody's car and leave a tracker, and they then remove the trespassing device that somehow deprives you of your property interest you the government of your property interest in the tracker Uh, but it does seem a bit rich
4: and a bonus the tracker is unlabeled so how do you know whose (laughs) property you're dealing with it is by any means abandoned property congratulations you just got a free gps tracker (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> stick it on your competition's car
3: yeah what would happen if the drug dealer put it on the bottom of a police cruiser <laughs> that's what would be really fun <laughs> he'd get arrested for trespassing the he'd be in deep
0: trouble <laughs> yes uh, a <laughs> uh, quickly uh, uh lightning round uh the russians uh, uh, uh you know, moving from strength to strength, have said uh, uh, you can't sell devices in this country without uh, pre-approved Russian alternative software. Uh, uh, presumably, this eliminates uh, the middleman, and you know, you, you you can acquire a device, and instead of people having to fish you with malware, it's already installed. What what a convenience, Nick.
4: Watch this space. It's going to be interesting because if Russia succeeds. Others will follow suit as well.
0: So uh, let me ask you about this one. Uh, uh, Uber plans to record audio during rides. Uh, There's a legal issue there uh, because in two-party or all-party consent states, you need everybody who's recorded to consent. I don't see that they have a problem getting the consent of all their drivers. I don't see how they have a problem getting the consent of the person who calls for the Uber. But the guests that the Uber... Uh, Passenger brings with them, Uh, not clear how you're going to get consent from them.
4: Also, um, for some of this, you need very meaningful consent, which is not necessarily click through licensing. And finally, um, what's the point? What's the reason why they want to do this? They claim some security mechanism, but Truth be told, I think the best security is a way of spying on their customers and hoping to extract value in some hypothetical way. It does not actually make sense from a passenger security viewpoint.
0: Oh, I don't know. If, you know, there, there have been cases where uh, uh, drunken women have gotten into uh, Uber cars and claimed later that they were sexually assaulted. Uh, uh, and you can see how uh, it would be useful to have this. It'd be useful to have it if a driver says, well, you threw up in my car. and You know, I, uh, my guess is that the tape would be useful in uh, resolving that debate as well. I, 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 I suspect... Most people are going to think it's an advantage um, uh, to have that uh, taping uh, available as a possibility because it, it prevents abuse on both sides.
4: Well, we'll see.
0: Okay. Uh That's it for uh, uh, today's uh, uh, news roundup. Uh, Now I'm going to move to Brad Smith, president of Microsoft and co-author of the new book, Tools and Weapons, The Promise and Peril of the Digital Age, uh, which he wrote with Carol Ann Brown. So, uh, uh, Brad Smith, welcome. Uh, It's a pleasure to have you on. And I really enjoyed your book. Uh, um, Some books uh, of this kind don't really get going in the first 100 pages because uh, you're kind of being brought up to speed on stuff you may already know. Uh, uh, But I thought the best part of your book was probably the first uh, two-thirds because of how many of the issues you cover you had some personal involvement in. You were – pretty much uh, present uh, for many of the critical decisions of the last five years in cybersecurity policy. Uh, it's hard to leave Microsoft out. And uh, you were the policy guy who uh, uh, got the call on many of those. So it was it was fun to read about all these issues and your personal take on it. Um, let me ask you, given that, um, what's What's the episode that you remember best that had the most impact for you personally uh, that you cover in the book?
1: Um, It's a great question, and I think we chose the title Tools and Weapons for the book because this has been a decade where technology, digital technology, has gone from being thought about principally as a tool to a weapon as well. And if there is a single watershed in that narrative... I really do think it came in 2013 with the Snowden disclosures. Um, I think there were a couple of inflection points over the course of the decade. I would say that and Cambridge Analytica. Um, but I'll call out, to answer your question, you know, the response of the tech sector and governments around the world, uh, just to come to grips to with what it means to have so much data about people stored, who can use it. Um, you know what it meant to have the United States government have access to so much data that all started in terms of public realization in 2013. So we, we
0: there was clearly an immediate um, reaction about uh, the pro- the a program that you actually were not involved in, which was collection of metadata uh, on calls in the United States. Uh, and uh, the modification of that program and, and what may eventually be its demise uh, um, is the most obvious fallout from Snowden. But from your Point of view. Uh, that was interesting, but not your problem. Uh, uh, what do you think has been the lasting legacy of Snowden apart from that one program?
1: Well, I think there have been some important changes as a result, and they all go to the need to have a balance, a balance that ensures that law enforcement can access data to keep the public safe, and the public's fundamental rights rights enshrined in the Fourth Amendment of the Constitution are preserved at the same time. And when you look at the uh, episodes that follow the disclosure, the stories that we share in our book, um, it's the story in part of uh, a change in public policy so that tech companies can share data about what kinds of orders we get and in what number. I think that gives the public a broad ability to assess how much of this activity is going on, and the truth is it, it's less rather than, than more. Uh, I think that it has changed uh, uh, what was a government practice in the United States of seeking gag orders uh, as almost a matter of routine, having two-thirds of those gag orders last forever. So what that means is that people are more likely to know, eventually at least, when the government is accessing their data. And I think the third change is really very important for businesses. Uh, It has established the principle that, as a general practice, uh, if the government wants to access data that a legitimate business has stored in the cloud, it should go to the business and not to the cloud service provider. That way the business can represent itself through its lawyers and its legal department just as it did before it moved its data to the cloud. So those are three areas that I I think put together actually amount to considerable change. Do you think that, that it was ever realistic
0: to go to a cloud provider to get access to this data? cloud provider has almost no insight into how that data is structured, do they?
1: Well, it depends on what kind of data uh, the government wants. Uh, if the government wants uh, uh, to serve a warrant and pull email,
0: uh, so you're including that as cloud uh, uh, information as well. But of course, yes. the government does still go to uh, 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 Microsoft or Hotmail and to Google for Gmail. Uh, uh, it doesn't go. It doesn't try to figure out who is the corporate owner of those systems, does it?
1: Well, I think it actually varies a good deal. If it's uh, a consumer uh, who has a Hotmail or Outlook.com account or a Gmail account, um, then by definition, the government uh, will go to the the service provider. Uh, On the other hand, if the government is investigating conduct at a company or if it's investigating an individual who happens to work at a company and want the company's email or you know, Word documents, you know, PowerPoint decks and the like. Uh, I think that's an area where this has led to a shift with at least more likely the government going to the business. And if the government comes to us or Google, for example, instead, uh, it gives us the ability to redirect this. And, and most often, we're able to do that.
0: Okay. So it, it, maybe this is a reason for, for companies to go to Office 365 instead of telling to their people to, uh, to use their uh, own Hotmail and Gmail accounts because once you're, you're, you're within the bounds of a corporate-provided cloud that you've borrowed or you've rented from uh, uh, Microsoft, then Microsoft knows that this is a corporate account and can push law enforcement toward uh, a, law, uh, a corporate solution.
1: That's one way to think about it. I actually think another way which tends to be the more prevalent thought process for most companies is a desire to go to the cloud and reap the benefits of going to the cloud without losing their legal rights in the process. Because if a company stores its email on its own server in its own office, well then of course by definition the laws of physics dictate that the government has to serve the warrant or subpoena on the business itself. And from our vantage point, we don't want to see our customers lose that right when they start to take advantage of the cloud. So can me take you back to
0: 2013 and the changes there? Because it does seem to me that, that the companies' changes themselves, the, the response of, of Silicon Valley uh, uh, companies was uh, you know, quite um, uh, emotional. Uh, and one of the immediate uh, uh, activities was to try to drive um, – HTTPS uh, into virtually everything that happens on the internet. Uh, So, to encrypt any communications to the server, uh, uh, into the cloud, uh, um, and that has had some really interesting consequences, including, I think, uh, the Cloud Act uh, uh, and uh, fights on the part of uh, a lot of governments who feel that the um, the drive to encrypt all those communications really shut out their law enforcement capabilities uh, to, uh, to get the content of communications, say, between two Brazilians. The Brazilian government suddenly found itself unable to get that uh, information unless it went to... Um, uh, Silicon Valley or, or to Seattle and asked for uh, the information through the uh, mutual legal assistance process. Uh, and that produced a whole kind of second order of, of effects, including, I suspect, uh, this whole move to localization of cloud services.
1: It's a complicated web. And I think that's what your your question rightly captures. I think if you try to unravel the web you see a few distinct things. First is the story that uh, Carol Ann Brown, my co-author, and I tell about what happened in 2013 that I think made the discussion emotional. I think you're, you're uh, you know, fair to use that word. Uh, and it was the specific story that the Washington Post ran in October of 2013 that indicated that the government, either the US or the UK are both together in some way, was actually tapping into cables. Uh, in this instance, the report was about Google and Yahoo cables outside of search warrants and subpoenas being served on the companies themselves. This was the and famous think,
0: smiley face uh, uh, slide.
1: Yes, and that precipitated a very fast reaction by the industry to encrypt data in transit, and data at rest, meaning stored in our data centers. So that perhaps foreclosed one government vehicle for accessing data. But interestingly, it did not foreclose a second, namely serving a lawful order to obtain data either from a business or an entity who created it or a, a tech company that has it stored in the data center. The fact that the data is encrypted on our servers does not mean that we're unable to uh, turn that data over in uh, a, a clear form that is readable. So you know, it, it shifted uh, part of the discussion, I would argue, more than it foreclosed, uh, you know, the lawful access, in my view, uh, of government access to data. Now, that in turn has led to the two other things that you mentioned. The first is this question of governments seeking to access data in other countries and whose rules should apply and what process should be followed. And the related aspect is, frankly, governments' concerns about each other. Um, At one level, the Snowden disclosures are six years old. But I am still struck when I am in Berlin, as I was two or three weeks ago. These are still more fresh in people's minds than I think most Americans might think about. And one reason is that one of the other incidents that was brought to light with those disclosures was the accessing of the phone of the chancellor of Germany. And so governments are still very much focused on and worrying about when other governments, including when the United States government, Uh, might seek uh, their public sector data. And that's why, in our view, ultimately we have a continuing need that we're progressing too slowly to address, namely rules of the road internationally uh, about whose laws will apply, how they'll be respected, and how governments will respect or seek data that belongs to each other.
0: Yeah, I, I I can't help uh, uh, reflecting on how uh, in our lifetimes the images have changed. Uh, now it's the world weary, cynical Americans saying, "What do you expect? This is the way of the world." And the idealistic, naive Europeans saying, "Oh no, we're just shocked that this is happening." Uh, uh, while of course they are actually doing some of this themselves. Uh, uh, indeed, one of the remarkable things about the European Union is one of the things that is not prohibited to. Uh, member states is spying on each other. They they, they still have authority to do that uh, and they do some of it. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, I think the, the fact that the U.S. had the capability and uh, the will to do that uh, has um, continued to uh, affect uh, European approaches to these issues. Uh, one of the things that it has led to, is an assumption that you can't trust U.S. cloud companies, which is a little awkward uh, for the Europeans since their their alternative is is to trust Chinese cloud companies. Uh, uh, but it has been a real marketing issue. Uh, uh, and that has led to the industry more or less supporting the Cloud Act, which is, a, is designed to say um, a... If you have someone uh, in your territory uh, who is providing services to your citizens, you can uh, get rapid access to the communications of uh, their customers uh, in ways that you couldn't under the Mutual Legal Assistance Treaty as a way of reducing the enthusiasm at least of law enforcement for insisting that all of the services be provided inside that country. Is that fair?
1: Uh, I think it's generally uh, an astute uh, uh, assessment. Uh, From our perspective, the Cloud Act does a couple of important things to ensure that the balance is struck in an appropriate way. First, it gives a tech company like ours that has customer data stored in a data center in another another country – Uh, the right to go to court, a right that we had under the common law that is affirmed in the Cloud Act if there's a conflict of laws. So if the German government passes a law that effectively blocks us from turning over data that's stored in Germany about a German customer, for example, um, just as the uh, Electronic Communications Privacy Act would do, in effect, if it were uh, reversed, Um, we can go to court and ask a US judge in a comedy proceeding uh, to enable us to turn the government down and redirect the government to a discussion with German authorities. And then second, it creates the domestic legal foundation for a new generation of international agreements. That is what the world needs. Uh, As you pointed out before, This is not an issue that arises only when the US government is interested in data in other jurisdictions. It arises when European governments have the same interest. It arises when the Brazilian government has the same interest. And if we want to have a world where data crosses borders, which it will, uh, given the nature of the planet, uh, and we want to have a world that ensures governance by the rule of law, Uh, a practical ability for law enforcement to do its job in affirmation of what we would call fundamental human rights principles, the only way to do that on a sustained basis is through a new generation of international law. And that's what the CLOUD Act seeks to nudge forward and create the basis to put into effect.
0: We've seen the UK take up the invitation, which is Probably the easiest uh, negotiation uh, that will occur with respect to the CLOUD Act. Uh, uh, are there other countries that are moving toward agreements or has the reaction been cooler than you'd hoped?
1: Well, interestingly, I would say two things, as, especially as somebody who meets with government officials literally around the world. The interest in other governments in having agreements with the United States under the CLOUD Act is in fact bigger and broader than we would have anticipated, say, a year or two ago. So there is more interest. At the same time, progress has been slower than what we had hoped. We need to move faster. I think in Washington, D.C., we would all benefit if, There's a larger team uh, working on this with the Justice Department. We need negotiations to move forward more quickly. Of course, the first agreement is always the hardest. uh, But I'm hoping that we'll reach a point over the next couple of years where we're going to see more of these agreements between, I'll say, like-minded governments, our NATO allies, uh, other democratic nations of the world that respect human rights. Um, We should have these come together.
0: So the the the, the um, European Court of Justice has taken uh, a more aggressive approach here. Their solution seems to be to say, "Look, we have European standards for what you can do with data and what you can't, as a government as well as a, as a company," um, and. In our view, the United States does not meet those standards. Therefore, U.S. law is not adequate. Therefore, no data can be sent to the United States. Uh, that's a different approach. Uh, it, it, it also begs for negotiation, but negotiation that resembles uh, the negotiation that occurred on the deck of the U.S.S. Missouri after World War II. Uh, we're just supposed to surrender to European law and accept their uh, restrictions. Uh, uh, they haven't said it to the United States yet but they more or less said it to Canada what's your assessment of the likely outcome of the European Court of Justice's crusade on this point?
1: Well it's a really good question. I, I don't think I can offer an accurate prediction about what the court will decide in the next big case now pending before it. What I do think we can say is two things first, Look, data needs to move across the Atlantic. Uh, you know, as we describe with the story around Max Schrems in our book, you know, it's extraordinary when you step back and think about it. You know, a, a law student set in motion this process that completely upended uh, the potential flow of data in 2015 when the European Court ruled, as 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 you explained. Now. Everybody scrambled in Washington and Brussels to put in place a new agreement, the so-called privacy shield, so that data can continue to move. I think it's inconceivable that Europe and the United States could advance their economic prosperity and growth without ongoing data flows. So we'll see what the court decides in this next case. If it upends things again, then we're clearly going to be thrown back into a, another crisis, if you will, to put in place another arrangement to address it. Um, I don't think this is you know, sort of unilateral surrender. It is uh, a real negotiation. I think it speaks, in my view, to the need for a national privacy law in the United States. Then you'd have the basis for something that would feel more balanced and reciprocal.
0: And you had, you have, uh, you know, I, I think Microsoft has done its best to turn the California Consumer Privacy Act into that national legislation. You've more or less said that you're going to um, give everybody in the United States the same rights that California has given to Californians under the CCPA. Uh, Do you think that that approach is going
1: to spread? I think there are a couple things that are clear when it comes to privacy. First, uh, although Microsoft uh, was the first and to date the only – tech company to say will convey to all Americans the ability to reap the benefits of the law that California passed last year to protect privacy, Uh, my guess is more companies will do the same thing. Um, Part of it is just practical business efficiency. Um, You know, running one privacy regime for one of every eight Americans and then a different uh, privacy regime for the other seven of every eight is possible, but it, it's not necessarily desirable. And, and and that's obviously the calculation, the judgment. Uh, it's pre- it's pretty get. hard
0: to tell your your, your customers that, uh, I'm sorry because you're not a Californian, you don't get those uh, uh, those privileges, uh, the, that accommodation, that notice. Uh, uh, that's just not sustainable in the long haul.
1: Exactly. And I would say more broadly, I think the 2020s are a decade where we'll – increasingly want to grope our way as a planet as much as possible to a global privacy pact. Now, it's not a pact that will necessarily bring in every country, there are certain countries that do not think about privacy the same way that, say, uh, North America, Western Europe, and now a number of others do. But the more we have a globally consistent set of rules, the more we'll strike the kind of balance that will not only preserve privacy, but be good for business. Because I think it's easier for businesses to operate with one set of rules than with five, 10, 50, or 100. And so I think will start to see business interests ultimately ask governments, please get together and regulate this in a more consistent way. I
0: think that that makes all the sense in the world. The problem with most of the privacy rules, the CCPA, certainly the GDPR in Europe, is they're written at the level of uh, the the rights of man declarations from uh, uh, the French Revolution. They, they, um, They don't tell you really what you need to be doing, and they don't protect you from liability if the government decides uh, to look for something you've done wrong. They they are an invitation to punish people and, and you mentioned Cambridge Analytica earlier. I think that's a good example. The the privacy implications of what happened in Cambridge Analytica were extraordinarily modest. People had trusted their friends with this information. The friends had, had provided it to a third party. That third party had sold it in violation of Facebook's rules. And Facebook is getting hammered for that series of events about which it really had very little responsibility. But the laws are vague enough that they can be assessed massive fines just because everybody's blaming them for President Trump getting elected.
1: Well, I think your question really points to these two really interesting aspects of privacy that ultimately need to intersect. One is at a pragmatic level, one needs rules that are sufficiently detailed that as a business or other entity, a nonprofit, even a government that's storing data, you have clarity about what you're supposed to do, and you then have a level of certainty that you're doing it. Um, That's the pragmatic side. Uh, The other part of this is the principled side of this. Um, Why does this matter? Why did people care about Cambridge Analytica? Um, I think it's fundamentally because people found that their personal information was being used in a way that they did not consent to uh, and they did not approve of. Namely, it was being used in, for many people in a campaign to support a candidate that they were voting against. And it doesn't really matter whether it was one party or the other, I think it is just a more general example People do want to exercise a level of control about their own data. Uh, And when they're not able to, they get upset. And I don't think it's unfair for people to get upset when their own personal information is used in in a way that is at odds with what they want.
0: Yeah, maybe. Although it's pretty hard for a business to be able to predict. Uh, oh, that they were they 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 were happy when I was using this and, and allowing the uh, Obama campaign to uh, to run these ads, uh, but they'll be unhappy if I let a Republican do it. So uh, I have to make sure that my uh, privacy practices. Don't um, assist uh, an unpopular candidate who might win. This is is the problem with privacy law and privacy principles. So, yes, you can say, don't use my data in a way that I don't like, but you can't express it in more – if you can't express it in more detail, you've given the – company almost no guidance, uh, and it becomes then a tool for uh, powerful people to beat up less powerful people, uh, although uh, characterizing Facebook as less powerful uh, might be a stretch.
1: Well, I think what this really reflects is the need for what we call in our book a third wave of privacy protection. We went from notice and consent, just tell people what's going on and have them click on a I accept button in the first wave in the 90s, to, well, let's let people access their data and edit it. That's called what's come from Europe the last five years, to a third wave that we'll need in the next decade that will require more detailed rules, that will require that the public, through its elected governments, decide what uses of data are permissible What uses of data are off limits? I don't see any other way to address the kinds of questions you're raising other than through that.
0: So um, I want to make sure that you have an opportunity to talk about something that I have uh, made fun of from time to time uh, on this show, the Digital Geneva Convention. You've you've worked very hard on that. Uh, I am a Profound skeptic, but uh, why don't you explain what it is that uh, the Digital C- Geneva Convention would do, and why we need it? And uh, you know, then I'll expose you to a little of my skepticism.
1: Sure. Well, you know, first, I, I would make clear when we and I specifically gave a speech in February of 2017, calling for a Digital Geneva Convention, it was not uh, you know, advocacy for you know, some specific uh, treaty written in a specific way. It was a call to action to preserve in the 21st century one of the fundamental advances that we believe the world achieved in the 20th century. In 1949, the world's governments came together in Geneva, Switzerland, with the International Committee for the Red Cross. They signed the fourth Geneva Convention. And it fundamentally committed governments, both morally and legally, to protect civilians even in times of war. And our basic point was, and is, that we are living in what is ostensibly a time of peace, and we are seeing some governments attack civilians every day. That's what the WannaCry and NotPetya attacks were. That's what we're seeing emanate from, say, Iran and Russia and North Korea. Uh, And this ought to be off limits. I think we all agree
0: it would be it would be a better world if we we're off limits. But um, how do we enforce that? Because if if you write a set of rules and only the West observes them, then you've actually made the situation worse.
1: Well, I think you should think about two things. If our adversaries don't observe these rules by refraining from attacking civilians, yeah. You know, do we actually want our government to respond by attacking civilians? Actually, no. I would argue no. We do not want our government under any circumstances, at least in times of peace for sure, you know, to be attacking schools and hospitals and you know, the fundamental institutions of elections and democracy. So you know, we're not actually advocating that the Western democracies disarm from something that they want to do. To the contrary, I believe it's important for the Western democracies to stand on the strength of their values, the principles that they pursued throughout the Cold War and put pressure When Ronald Reagan traveled to Berlin, and he stood outside East Berlin and said, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down that wall, the West was acting on the strength of everything that it stood for. And it was that ability to combine the strength of our values and the leadership that comes from our principles with the pragmatism that one can bring to bear. When there are clear violations of rules, with the opening it creates for governments to respond with appropriate responses, Uh, it's how we won the Cold War. It's how we need to win the next technology war, if you will.
0: OK. So I, 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 I want to give you uh, – I, I have two more questions, uh, one pretty short and the other uh, as long as you want to give and then we'll wrap up. Uh, first, you probably know that one of the uh, regular contributors to uh, uh, the Cyberlaw podcast is Nate Jones. Uh, uh, you call him out in the book uh, as uh, uh, the uh, one half of a duo of uh, policy uh, uh, and law experts, uh, uh, Nate and Amy. Uh, which quickly became Namey, so that uh, important policy calls always had to go to the to the Namey team. Uh, uh, he says he begged you to take that out of the book, uh, um, uh, and uh, all I, I ask is if you've got a really good story about uh, Nate Jones, uh, this is the time to tell it.
1: Well. Uh, you know, this is the story of Nate Jones and Amy Hogan-Burney. They both joined Microsoft, you know, within a year of each other, around 2013. Uh, they both came from the U.S. government, and they both found themselves, you know, right on the front line of interacting with uh, the, the U.S. government. Um, it They were the dynamic duo uh, uh, of that time. Uh, Nate uh, is, as you know, uh an incredibly bright, able, calm uh, advisor, decision-maker, negotiator, Uh, uh, not the most extroverted personality uh, on the corridor. Uh, Amy balanced that a bit. Uh, She has a a great sense of humor, as does Nate, but Amy's probably the more likely of the two to share uh, her humor first. Um, Yeah, I've sat through thick and thin with Nate, you know, from negotiating with the Brazilians when there was a criminal prosecution of our executive because we wouldn't turn over data, uh, to uh, him being the person sitting behind me at Senate and House Judiciary Committee hearings. Um, I don't know that I have uh, uh, the the world's funniest story about Nate, but I will say this about both Nate and Amy. Uh, If you have to go through a battle that involves uh, legal challenges, they're both people you want to have uh, on your side and representing you. And I sure as heck benefited from having both of them working. Well,
0: he's been a great contributor. My last question, uh, as long as you like it, uh, I have been part of uh, uh, cybersecurity policy since at least 1992 when – Microsoft was the hardest edged of all the tech companies we dealt with, uh, um, absolutely um, gave no quarter uh, in pursuit of its policy and business objectives, and had a reputation to match uh, as uh, uh, a bully and a danger to the community. Uh, That view of Microsoft is completely overturned uh, over the last decade or so, Um, uh, as as somebody uh, said, I won't ask you to uh, validate this. They said, uh, yeah, um, uh, Google's the new Microsoft and Microsoft is the new Google. Uh, uh, Microsoft participates in open source projects. It um, it has been a moderate voice uh, in Silicon Valley and uh, in Washington. Um, uh, What do you attribute this radical change in public perception and, frankly, I
1: think, uh, in actual conduct, too. Well, I think that Microsoft has most definitely changed since the early 1990s. Um, I joined the company in 1993, just a year after the date that you just referred to. Uh, and, you know, we were younger. Um, and, you know, as you age, over the course of a quarter of a century, you hopefully have the opportunity to get not just older, but wiser. Um, I think in Microsoft's case, we were, to a certain degree, a graduate of the school of hard knocks. Uh, specifically, the hard knocks uh, that came from you know intense antitrust litigation from the US Department of Justice and, and 20 state attorneys general, as well as uh, competition cases literally around the world. Uh, we had a bit of a comeuppance if you will. Um, but out of that, I think we came away with a broader perspective. I think we developed a more mature outlook. Uh, and I think, above all else, we realized that you know, if you have to choose between hubris and humility, choose humility. <laughs> uh, yeah, Nobody ever died of humility. That's what I like to say around Microsoft. The truth is, it makes you smarter. It makes you better because it makes you more interested in learning from other people and listening to what they have to say. Uh, and uh, yeah, out of that sense of humility, if you will, um, yeah, I do think we've gotten better connected with uh, whether it's customers or governments or nonprofit organizations or the think tanks of the world. Uh, and. We focus on what we uh, think we need to do best, which is create technology that other people can use to be successful. Uh, And we don't do what we did in the 90s, which is try to enter so many different fields of business. Uh, And we try, when problems arise, to start by asking, what are people worrying about? Um, I think in the world today, and you see it every day in the world of politics, People immediately start by agreeing or disagreeing with a specific proposal, a solution, if you will. Um, they disagree about the solution so quickly that they may fail to appreciate that their assessment of the problem actually may be somewhat similar. And you know, we try to acknowledge the problem. We try to understand where people are coming from. We try to develop a principled approach to address it. And even if we end up with a different solution than what somebody else might have advocated, I think it builds some common ground. And I think we live in a world and in a country where we need more common ground. I think that's one of the themes, in effect, in our book.
0: Thanks, Brad. Yes, I I agree with you. Uh, uh, The book is Tools and Weapons, The Promise and Peril of the Digital Age, written by Brad Smith and Carol Ann Brown. Uh, It is a good read, and uh, I I enjoyed it, uh, and I really enjoyed uh, talking to you, Brad. Uh, uh, It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for the time. All right. Well, thanks to Brad Smith. Uh, Thanks to David Chris and Nate Jones and Nick Weaver for joining us uh, uh, in Episode 289 of the Cyberlaw Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe & Johnson. Uh, uh, Before we go, I'm going to give you a message. Uh, You knew we were going to get to advertising sooner or later, uh, but this is an easy one to take. planning a complimentary webinar on Tuesday, December 10, when we'll be talking about the impacts on retailers of the newly implemented CCPA, which we just finished talking to Brad Smith about, as well as the GDPR in Europe. You can find more, uh, uh, and you can even register if you just go to steptoe.com and poke around uh, looking for it. Uh, please send more guest suggestions and other feedback to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Follow me at Twitter uh, in the Keeping with my um, infrequent uh, uh, reward uh, system, I did send out tweets uh, this week uh, uh, listing some uh, topics that I thought we might cover, and we covered about uh, three-quarters of them. Uh, Rate the show and leave us a review uh, on iTunes, Google Play, and wherever you get your podcasts. We're getting more reviews, uh, and fewer of them uh, are complaining about my politics, although I'm guessing after today's episode, we'll get more complaints about that. Uh, uh but please join us uh, next week as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology security, privacy and government.